This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. We expect too much from parents as well. And that's one of the reasons I, I tell people why you know, I'm delaying certain commitments in life. It's largely mm. because it's much and much harder now mm. to, uh, well, first of all, it's expensive. It is. Right? It's just it getting is. more and more expensive <laughs> yes. to raise children. Yes, it is. And the expectations of a well-formed child. Right? What's an adult? What do you think an adult? How do we define an adult? Because apparently there's been some research going on or some redefinition right. of what a Gen Y or what an adult right, is. So right. I think the age is actually a lot higher right now. So you can't consider yourself an adult unless you're like, what, 24? Was it? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, now these days it's a lot higher. Yeah, it's <laughs> a little bit higher. Isn't it, it takes a while for people to finally kind of, yeah. you know, quote unquote, adult. Yeah. Now adulting is a verb. Yes, right. it is. Largely, you know, yes. largely because people are realizing it's a much longer process than, than it is. Thought. Yes. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores culture, theory, and society. This week, we're talking about social emotional learning, particularly in the Context of developmental psychology and joining us to do that are Eugene T, a regular guest here. Welcome back to the show, Eugene. You teach psychology at Help. Pleasure to be here, Fuad. Thanks for having us. We're always uh, exciting whenever we get together because I think, and I even re-listen to a lot of our episodes, Eugene. Oh, because, I'm very flattered. <laughs> because it's cheaper <laughs> than going to therapy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, economy is okay. bad these days. But yeah, I always, I always like it because I think you can really explain emotions very well, you know, very clearly and and. That's one of the things that we hope to achieve today as well Thanks, in the context of uh, development more broadly. And of course, we'd like to welcome uh, Sibella Ng. Yes. You also teach at HELP and you work particularly in developmental psychology itself. Yes, that's right. All right, that's awesome. Me. So why don't we start with getting to know you a little bit more. How did you get interested in this field? Well, growing up, I've always had a passion to work with children. So I've started volunteering at Sunday school. And that was when I thought that I would end up becoming a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. However, my fear of needles and blood wasn't exactly helpful to get me to medicine school. Mm -hmm. Um, Hence, I came across psychology when I was 16 or 17, when I was deciding about what to study. Mm -hmm. That's when I thought, hey, I could still work with children now that there's this thing called developmental psychology. Right, right. Now, tell us a little bit more about working with children because psychology is so discursive, right? There's a scientific element to it. There's an interpersonal element to it. But children don't necessarily know what they're saying. Children aren't necessarily used to talking about complicated stuff that psychology typically explores. So Mm -hmm. paint us a picture of what it's like to work with children as a psychologist. Oh, it's actually very fun because you get to use toys, Mm. puppets, arts and crafts in order to get them to engage, interact and communicate with you. But more than that, actually, more than just working with children, now I see the importance also with working alongside their parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I think that it is very important that parents are aware of how to raise children in a very healthy environment. Right, right. Yes. And in a lot of ways, it's a concern even in later adulthood because I'm starting to realize 
by now my 30s how much of my habits have been kind of retained over decades <laughs> you know yes. even my early adolescence so right. uh, it's good to start early oh yes definitely <laughs> i completely agree right. with that yeah. yeah is this a subset of psychology is it a nice to have or is it more essential than people normally think um if this is in relation to social emotional learning mm-hmm. for what i think it's essential i think there's this growing realization amongst educators practitioners that we need to start young as you've mentioned just a while ago so shaping modeling and i would say also imparting the kinds of skills that students don't necessarily young learners in this case don't necessarily have as part of a formal education but i think it can be infused into the existing curriculum mm-hmm. so teaching the soft skills that we seem to come across in newspapers and reports as saying that a lot of our graduates actually miss these out so i think if we start young and infuse that into our current educational curriculum i think we're going to reap the long term benefits of healthier more well adjusted more engaged more motivated and of course better citizens that we can solve craft from our students right it just made me think too of some of the friendships i've had you know so sometimes you keep in touch with friends from secondary school mm-hmm. right when you got to know them at 12 and 13 mm-hmm. and you realize how much of them are still recognizable mm-hmm. you know to this day mm-hmm. and then you realize some of the habits that they still retain yes. now and you know that there's a longer story that those habits have even before you met them at 12 yes. you know right. so i agree with you i think there's a it's an essential component to mm-hmm. see sort of where we were formed but what makes childhood so formative to begin with right why because i like to think that we're so adaptable mm-hmm. that you know all our habits are you know things that you can change you can pick up and let mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. and nowadays you know we glorify variety we glorify yes. sort of you know the voluntary transformations and stuff like that mm-hmm. right because there's a kind of mainstreaming of the idea that the self can be fashioned and refashioned mm-hmm. but psychology tells a different story yes. right mm-hmm. Generally it's hard to change. Mm-hmm. Typically people want to change but at the same time they don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this begins early in life, yes, right? So uh, tell us how formative that is. I think it goes all the way back to infancy, really. At infancy, infants actually experience, they even perceive emotions right when they're born. And so what happens is that with adequate sufficient nurturance from their caregivers when they feel comfortable when they learn to build trust that is when they begin to build on skills that are related to social and emotional development and what happens is that from their early relationships not just with their caregivers but with their family with their peers when they eventually go to school that's when the habits and the values that you've mentioned become infused and ingrained in themselves now of course with good habits it is you know it's good to retain them over time mm-hmm. because someone is you know comfortable and having established and maintained relationships based on the values that they have been nurtured with would help them in their overall relationship with others mm-hmm. but of course you know with bad habits that sometimes get retained as well it is also what has worked for that person and so seeing comfort you know even with bad habits mm-hmm. they just find it comfortable to right. just stick with it yeah. um can you explain a little bit about mm-hmm. the assumption that you're working with mm-hmm. are infants like a blank slate that just absorbs whatever is around them or is there something else going on before socialization i do think that it's a little bit of both when they come into this world 
you know, in a good, healthy environment, that's when they absorb, you know, sorry, both in healthy and bad environments. They Mm -hmm. do absorb the things, the stimuli, you know, that's in their environment. And so what happens is that, you know, with good relationship with parents, with caregivers, that's when they eventually learn. Yeah, Uh, But how about genetics, right? mm -hmm. So there's a line of thought that says sometimes depression is genetic, right? So Mm. on one hand, yes, there are these social forces that shape the child, Mm. but they also are flesh and blood. They have elements from their parents or grandparents that enter into the formation of their personality. So where does genetics come Mm. in? Absolutely, Fuad. I would agree with you. And I don't think any psychologist or any researcher out there is going to say that it's predominantly just either nature or nurture that we're talking about. Mm. I would agree with you wholeheartedly that genetically infants and subsequently young adults as they develop have a lot of, they take on a lot from, say, their parents, their personality for one as well. But based on that mold, you would have certain personality types which tend to gravitate towards behaving in a certain way a lot more regularly than, say, another type. I'll give you the suggestion of one of the traits that we've previously discussed before, neuroticism, sensitivity towards negative emotions, for instance. You have a lot of studies that show that infants, oh, so, sorry, not infants, subsequently as they develop, as um, infants develop into young adults, you will have highly neurotic individuals more prone to say things such as rumination, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, all kinds of maladaptive psychological outcomes. But that's not destiny. I think there's a lot to be said about society and social interactions as well. So a neurotic individual growing up who has a lot of support from individuals within their environment can actually sustain themselves. They can also excel, they can do pretty much anything and excel in areas that a slightly less neurotic individual uh, would do. On that note, um, I think we can tie that back in to our discussion on social-emotional learning because two of the components that inform a lot of SEL programs would be self-awareness, knowing your own values, knowing where you come from. So recognizing that a lot of your tendencies, your behaviors, your personalities are already shaped by your interactions with your caregivers, as Sibel has mentioned. Mm -hmm. Another important component of SEL is relationship building. So as students, young learners, interact with others within a schooling environment, there's a lot to be said about friendships Mm -hmm. and how to manage them. Why do we gravitate towards certain individuals and not others? So in this sense, programmed, well-structured, evidence-based SEL programs can be beneficial in helping students navigate this kind of social minefield, if you will, Mm -hmm. of new friendships and relationships. Yeah, because the earliest cues we take about how to manage relationships come from the immediate family experience, typically caregivers or parents, and then Mm -hmm. we bring that into our friendships and later on relationships and stuff, right? You've talked about attachments, so I think that's very much in line with Mm -hmm. uh, what we have been talking all this while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you explain a bit more about attachment, where that fits into the formation of social-emotional expressions and learning? Yes, sure. With attachment, so, you know, even psychologists, research experts from about half a century ago, have found that positive attachment to caregivers, it doesn't have to be biological parents, but you know any caregivers that the child feels most comfortable with, mm-hmm. caregiver who's an adult, if you would, who's consistent in providing support, in building a sense of predictability, in providing a safe space for the child, that's mm-hmm. when the child actually learns to build on trust. Mm-hmm. And when the child feels that he or she can trust the adults around him or her, that's when they're able to feel comfortable in communicating and building relationships with other people outside of their immediate environment. Mm -hmm. 
the interesting part about attachment is that at some point we have to also talk about detachment. Mm-hmm. And detachment is very disappointing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. typically young parents of my age, maybe a little younger, they're very afraid of disappointing their kids. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like every moment when they say no, there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of like, you know, deliberation. I mean, mm-hmm. how does disappointment factor into the learning? You know, like because at some point being an individual means finding your own sort of independence mm. and, and that's something that's right. people struggle with, especially in very kin-centered societies like yes. us, right? Yes. In the Asian mm-hmm. context where yes. it's not unusual that you keep very close contact with your parents, yes. with your grandparents, yes. right? I mean, we just had Chinese right. New Year recently, so mm-hmm. detachment is often a struggle as well. Mm. Right? Well, I think it's um, just how close we are with our parents. I think people continue to live with their parents for an extended period of time here in a collectivist society, and it's not often that they move out until they're married. Um, Sabella and myself have actually been working on a couple of uh, projects together, and one of the things which we might want to introduce is the concept of building grit in children, so grittiness. Mm. So I think what parents do, and one important role that they can play is to model a kind of independence, a kind of combination of passion or passive passion mm-hmm. and perseverance to their children, and to say that, look, you're going to have to try this on your own. You're going to have to be independent. You can't keep relying on me. But doing so in a very supportive and nurturing environment, telling them that failure, setbacks, and challenges are actually mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. They're part mm-hmm. and parcel mm-hmm. of life. And when children start recognizing that even their parents face difficulties, but they're also able to overcome them, that's when you get this positive modeling. This is where I think you get a healthy sense of attachment to know that your parents are still there to have your mm-hmm. back, yeah. but you're also free and autonomous to go and pursue your own interests as you see right, fit. Right, right. That's interesting, but I think a lot of times too, maybe this is tangential, you can, you can tell me if it is, but we expect too much from parents as well. And that's one of the reasons I, I tell people why you know, I'm delaying certain commitments in life. It's largely mm. because it's much and much harder now mm. to, uh, well, first of all, it's expensive. It is. Right? It's just it getting is. more and more expensive yes. to raise children. Yes, it yes. is. And the expectations of a well-formed child, right? What's an adult? What do you think an adult is? <laughs> okay, yeah. how, how do we define an adult? Because apparently there's been some research going on or some redefinition right. of what a Gen Y or what an adult right, is. So right. I think the age is actually a lot higher right now. So you can't consider yourself an adult unless you're like, what, 24, was it? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. now yeah. these days it's a lot higher. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit higher. Isn't it, it takes a while for people to finally kind of, yeah. you know, quote unquote, adult. Yeah, now yeah. adulting is a verb. Yes, right. it is. Largely, you know, yes. largely because people are realizing it's a much longer process than, mm-hmm. than we it is. thought. Yes. So uh, I'm looking at a lot of my peers with mm. children, and I just think I don't remember having this sort of world, mm. you know, where like there's gadgets everywhere, mm-hmm. and, and my parents were reading volumes of books mm-hmm. on the angelic child or whatever, you know, mm. and then when the second child comes, everything you knew from raising the first child goes out right. the window because yep. yep. you have two kids. Yes. Yes. And then the third child comes, everything changes. Like every day is yes. like this. Yes. So, of course, I don't want to sidetrack, but it seems like there's what we're presuming is the always available and always emotionally centered parent yes, yes. To, to realize the developmental ideals you just talked about. I think that is yes. a big ask. I think it's it's a big demand to be placed on, on parents as well. And the rate in which the world is actually changing, technological advancements mm-hmm. is just one of those factors. I think that places a lot of expectations on parents and the many different ways in which you should be expected to raise your child. Right. But also, since you mentioned technological advances, I think that it can also be used to the parent's advantage Mm -hmm. in raising a child. Of course, there are times when such technological advances are misused, but it can also be reframed Mm -hmm. in a way where, you know, you still 
keep yourself up to date with all the different devices that now children are being exposed to. Mm-hmm. And that can also help with their social-emotional learning process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are also many apps, many resources that parents themselves can tap into mm-hmm. in coping with their various workloads and responsibilities, but yet at the same time feel that they're still able to connect with their children. Right, right. Yes. And the other thing too is that children are more observant than the parents realize. Mm. Oh, yes. And sometimes the parents want to channel certain traits that they want the children to take. Mm. Mm-hmm. The children will take the trait that the parent inadvertently showed instead yes. and typically yep. is mm-hmm. negative or unexpected or yes. something, right? right? So uh, we'll talk more about this in detail in the second part of the show. But let's take a break. We're talking about social emotional learning in the uh, frame of developmental psychology and joining us this week for that are Sibella Ng and Eugene T from Help University. We'll be right back after this. This is Night School. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, joined this week by Eugene T and Sibella Ng of Help University, both from the psychology department, and we are talking about social-emotional learning. And in the first part of the show, we talked about how this fits into developmental psychology more broadly, where developmental psychology ties into, I guess, broadly speaking, psychology in general. And I want to get into more details in the second part of the show. It seems to me, and after some time in life, you just kind of notice this, nobody had the ideal childhood, Mm. you know, or there's something about childhood that always has to be lacking somehow. Mm. And I'm talking about even like well-to-do people who were well-fed, well-educated, still feeling something amiss Mm. with the the parents, you know, despite Mm. the fact that their parents did their best, Mm. nobody was abused, right, to their knowledge. But there's something lacking in their childhood that mm. haunts them forever. I mean, mm. how do we understand that? Is that is there something that we have to accept at some point that there's no mm. such thing as an ideal childhood? Or does developmental psychology actually fix that? Can there be a point at which you look back and go, you know what, my childhood was tip top, right? <laughs> so, so how does that function? Uh, for one, I've never come across anyone who thought that their childhood was tip top, yeah. ideal, you know. But I think it has to do a lot with expectations. For one, I think that parents or as adults, when you become parents, of course you want what's best for your child. But there are also times when parents think that what's best for the child It's not exactly what the child thinks is best for Mm. them, especially when they grow older, you know, and they start comparing how they're raised at home versus how Mm. their friends are raised. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, of course, with comparisons, children begin to see that, well, life at home isn't all perfect. So I believe that it has a lot to do with expectations and how parents are able to manage that expectations at home Mm -hmm. in having open communications with their children, as well as being open to having their child's best interest in mind. Not Mm -hmm. their best interest for Mm -hmm. their child, but having their child's best interest Mm -hmm. in mind. Right. A kind of projection, I think, almost that, you know, that parents wish for certain of their own personal aspirations to be lived through Mm -hmm. vicariously through their children. So I think I would agree wholeheartedly with Sabah. It's something to do with expectations as well. I think our parents do the best job that they know how to and whatever they've learned in terms of parenting practices were also handed down from their own parents. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of part, they model after their own parents as well. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that it's... Well, sometimes it might be a little bit deficient, but I think 
what parents can actually do is to also equip the children with the necessary skills to help them navigate not just school, not just friendships, but life mm-hmm. in general, to role model certain values, certain manners of behaving that will prepare them for life. Yeah. I yeah. think social emotional learning places that responsibility a little bit more closely to that uh, to the school. I think a statement from one of the articles which we were reviewing mm-hmm. is quite telling that schools should be preparing students for life, not just for tests or for exams. I think think we're shortchanging our students if we just focus on the academic Mm -hmm. aspects of child development. Yeah. On that point about expectations too, I have a friend who has like a child's five years now and he's trying to, as much as he can, tell the child that, look, my failings isn't your fault. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm because I've lived for 30 years, 30 over years now, Mm -hmm. and there are things that shaped me, right? Causes and effects that I had no control over, that I was Mm -hmm. hurt by, that somehow transfers into our relationship mm. but I want you to know even the worst happens mm-hmm. right it's not your fault mm. you know I'm just mm. trying to figure stuff out too mm. right so yeah. I think mm. coming to terms with the fact that you know as a parent or all parents will have flaws and being mm-hmm. able to have that conversation mm. yes. with the child is yes. very important right mm-hmm. then the child knows what to expect or what not right. to and right. navigate right. that right, right. Mm-hmm. yeah so do parents now have to read psychology? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, there's a really interesting, it's a wealth of resources that you have, yes, your approach yeah. and your, your questions. And mm. it seems that, you know, this is the rare moment when academic psychology is actually bridging with a real life mm. considerations that people have. Mm. And you know, yes. typically adults will have children or already mm. do at some point, right? Yeah. So, yeah, how do you respond to that? Of course, I wouldn't say that all parents have to enroll in a psychology course. That's why we as academicians, what we're doing, especially with the live program that we've recently established, we aim to help parents or we want to bring psychology to parents by bringing up the awareness or raising the awareness on the different methods, if you will, on raising children. So, of course, you'll find that on the internet, there are so many, you know, perspectives, there are so many opinions on how to raise a child. But of course, as psychologists, we want to bring about evidence-based approaches Mm. that have, you know, been researched on, that have proven efficacy in their program. Mm. So part of life and what we're doing is to organize and conduct these workshops for parents. So Mm. we bring psychology to parents Mm -hmm. in the hopes that, you know, they are able Mm. to also acquire and apply some of these knowledge that we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I think it's great that with the LIFE program, mm-hmm. there have been initiatives to bring psychology to parents. So not in a sense that they have to sit through an entire course, but mm-hmm. simple, just say two, two and a half hour workshops, which equip parents with new ideas on how best to discipline, how best to communicate, how best to empathize. Right. Some of the workshops that we've run, we've had, uh, we've had parents come up to us and say, how much iPad time, for instance, should right, we actually right. give yeah, yeah. Uh, our children? And how do we pull that away from them? Or how do we encourage them to seek other activities that don't involve them staring in front of a screen. So all these are actually healthy and we're not here to instruct them to say that this is the absolute best way. We're saying that here's some approaches that have been shown to testing scientific replication to be effective. It might work for you, mix and match. We also Mm -hmm. need to consider the context and the culture of this environment as well. Mm -hmm. But whatever we can do to actually help you be a much more confident parent whether to help yes. them do that. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. What mm-hmm. do you tell people? And I, I can see a lot of 
aunties and uncles in my head saying like you know well you turned out fine i didn't read any psychology books you (laughs) had a few of those um i'm talking about that's a a lot of people who think that right they've raised successful families and have successful kids Mm. and they never lifted a book of psychology Mm. so what do you say to that we think that times have changed now you know what has worked in the past for some of you know our parents generation perhaps Mm. may not I don't want to say that it's ineffective, but it may not be as effective Mm. for some other families. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to discard and say that, oh, you know, the uh, old method of raising a child Mm. is obsolete now. Mm. You know, it's completely ineffective. Mm. You know, who knows? It may work for some family, Mm. but yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all model. And what we hope to do is just to bring about more awareness, more I suppose, resources mm-hmm. to supplement what parents may already know. Right. Yeah. So growing interest and growing a sort of realization amongst educators in the United States, for instance, mm-hmm. that the environment has changed quite a fair bit over the past, say, two years mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. Different presidency, right. different sense of different environment, different climate over there as well. Mm-hmm. Race relations might be a little bit more tense. Mm-hmm. I think we struggle as well here within our context with issues such as race and ethnicity. Right. Right. So teaching children that the world is different, getting them to appreciate, recognize the differences, but also to to express respect for these differences is an important component of social emotional learning. Right. I think it requires both the parents and the educational institution and the system mm-hmm. to actually collaborate right. towards building an entire generation that has the skills to adapt to these sort of changing circumstances. It really does take a village to raise a child. It does, oh, nice. it does. I think that, yeah. <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of that contextual comparison you just made, this is a problem I face mm. as a teacher, as a researcher now, in that so many of my sources mm. are from the West. Yes. And there's a lot of fine-tuning that I have to do before I can kind of Absolutely. connect it here. Mm-hmm. Yep. And because this is developmental psychology, mm. it deals with children, the family context will have to be considered in Absolutely. that. In the Asian context, mm. it's very kin-centered, right? It's not it unusual is. that grandmothers will have a lot of time with a child. Mm. It's not unusual that aunties will have a lot of time mm. with a child. The child seems to be exposed to more different registers of parenting yes. than, yes. say, the Anglo-American or Western mm-hmm. sort of Agreed. isolated small family units, yes. right? So yes. what sort of cultural adjustments do you do as researchers when you want to mm. you know compare these phenomena we do acknowledge that on the basic level as you've initially highlighted as this sense of individualistic achievement and focus within Western societies. We are a little bit more collectivist Mm -hmm. over here. So any form of social emotional learning that involves, say, a realization and a recognition of cultural differences needs to take into consideration how our relationships are like in families and work groups as well. So understanding teamwork, appreciating, say, racial ethnic differences will be a lot more prominent here Mm -hmm. than for, say, a more homogenous society such as, say, in Japan or Mm -hmm. maybe in Hong Kong. So I think realization of these differences is an important first step and I think we need to nip the problem in the bud to say that look we are all different but we're all uniquely different and no one individual no one ethnicity or one race has an advantage over the other right right oh yeah I completely agree as well I think that yes these differences especially you know speaking about Malaysian context in the Malaysian context Mm -hmm. we celebrate differences I mean that's what we've grown up in schools Mm -hmm. to learn about and I think that has to also be embedded as with you know in uh, social emotional learning it cannot just be looked over Mm -hmm. but this diversity the differences you know what makes Malaysia so different than other countries is the diversity you know in 
infusing the uh, social emotional learning aspect that has to also be taken into consideration. Right. So we've talked a lot about the research side of things, but mm -hmm. how about the clinical side of things? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are more child therapists out there today yes, than ever yes, before. Yeah. I mean, is this becoming a more live option for children, you think? Or is that just more mm -hmm. of an exception? I think with social emotional learning, we are much more focused with the preventive approach the models that many schools have taken when they incorporate social and emotional learning is such that we want to highlight yes children who are at risk but we also want to equip them with the necessary resilience building skills mm -hmm. the ability to recognize understand the emotions the ability to reappraise and manage their own stresses so a lot of it is preventive in nature and so a lot of these programs have also been shown to be very efficacious in reducing instances of, say, aggression, depression, mm -hmm. and anxiety as well. I think that's something to be said about our education system right now. Uh, without sounding too critical, I think we're not necessarily doing it right. If we see kids, high school students, take their own lives because of poor examination results, mm -hmm. because of bullying instances. So I don't think we're doing enough for them. Mm -hmm. And yes, there will be a continued need for the clinical assessment, clinical aspects, child psychiatry, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. But I think we can go one further and sort of build a system, infuse the educational ecology with the necessary support that gives the students a safe learning environment, but also a very safe one as well. Yeah. It seems to me, though, that when you talk about institutions, it sounds quite impersonal in the sense that a lot of the struggles that you describe, like mm. feeling that, you know, you've accomplished something from mm. an exam or those things are more affective and emotive, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I guess I wonder if institutions can really fill that gap necessarily, you know, mm. because as we develop our personality, there's mm. just so much more of our personality that has to be recognized. Mm. You know, and children now, they're just exposed to so much of the world that mm -hmm. it's just more complicated, right. <laughs> it seems. Now, you know, one thing comes to mind is that just how much earlier they are exposed to mm. brands and consumerism, mm. right? The fact that they have to need tablets now in mm. order mm -hmm. to just be a part of their peers. You know, the fact that all these corporations are targeting a younger and younger demographic yeah. for their clientele, mm. right? As their clientele. It seems like it's like piranhas going after <laughs> every child, vying for mm. their kind of like buy-in, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I don't know, it's just so much. I'm glad I'm, I'm in my 30s now because I don't want to be <laughs> an infant in this day and age. Or I'm, maybe I'm just sounding bleak. You want every single thing you see on your iPad, isn't it? And so once the ad pops up, you can click on it and say, yeah, I want that too. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, materialism is actually yeah, on, on the rise. And this consumerism, this consumer culture, buy everything and buy everything now has mm. been made a whole lot more accessible to the user e-commerce and yeah. the shops that you have access to just through your tablet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it is problematic. There has been some research done linking consumerism with materialism, which is a sense that your sense of self-worth and who you are as an individual is very much reliant on the things that you own. Mm -hmm. I think that's really unhealthy for, yeah. for children. Uh, adding along the lines of what Dr. Eugene has mentioned, I think also that with the exposure to consumerism and materialism as well, Children, of course, begin to compare, you know, mm. in schools or, you know, when they're out of school. And so what happens is that, on that note, that's where social-emotional learning comes into play, I believe. Mm. One of the domains being self-awareness, as mm. Dr. Eugene has also mentioned earlier, setting up the groundwork for children to understand, 
you know, what they're going through, what mm. emotions that they're feeling, how to manage those emotions. So even if they were to compare with their peers and say, oh, you know, my friend X has so many things that their parents often shower them with, but mm. I'm lacking in such and such. But having that component or that domain, or even the other domains that make up social-emotional learning itself can actually help children to manage their expectations and their emotions in dealing mm. with such situations. Yeah. I'm getting a subtext here. Maybe you, you can clarify for me, but mm-hmm. are we essentially saying that children have to be resilient now at an earlier age than before? I've actually just read an article that claims that children or adolescents in this generation are actually less resilient Mm -hmm. than adults in the past generation. So we are Mm -hmm. essentially, I mean, this discussion essentially presumes that they have to be made more resilient earlier. Mm -hmm. Is that that part of the offer here? Well, I think one of the ways to actually look at that is to say that because changes in the environment and the challenges that Mm -hmm. children face are a lot more varied, a lot more different, Mm -hmm. I think it's beneficial to go against the tide almost, if you can just use the term to say that equipping students, young learners with resilience building at the very start in the early stages of their lives are going to have long-term benefits. Mm -hmm. And I think it readies them for fast-changing environments sooner. And that's very much preferred than if they were only ready for it at a later stage. Yeah. There's a kind of seriousness to resilience, you know, like, mm. you know, I try to read the, it's, it's a kind of a mainstreaming discourse, right? Resilient mm. books on resilience, mm. podcasts on resilience and stuff Option like that. B, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good thing, I think. Yeah. But there's a sense that, you know, it requires a lot of reflection, requires mm. a lot of working through and, mm. and all that, where we have to somehow take a step back from the sort of carefree unthinking mm. and just feeling with life kind of attitude oh. that maybe we all start with, you know. And <laughs> C'est la vie. That, that's, that's what childhood is for, mm. right? It's to be stupid and naive to an extent, you know. Curious and interested, yes. Yeah. I think maybe we can go middle ground for it and say that there's <laughs> yeah. there's emotional scaffolding. Yes. Right? Yes. Scaffolding is like, look, I'll hold one of your hand, but the other hand is a little bit. Mm. Yeah, so giving the, the child the opportunity to grow and explore, but also in the same way, being a prudent, wise parent mm. and telling them, this is dangerous, stop it right now. Yeah, so, yeah. I think you straddle in between those lines. So scaffolding would be the word I would use to, yeah, yeah. to strike that balance. And I think it takes time too. Like, I oh, think the yeah. messaging has to be like constant and consistent yes, over the years yes. because God knows the things I'm trying to figure out now. I should have 30 years ago or something. Yeah. You know? I feel like it takes a long time to kind of come to terms. We're all right? adulting for <laughs> more about it. We're all trying. We're all trying our best. <laughs> so anyway, unfortunately, we have to pause here. But we are always welcoming recommendations maybe paper titles that you can you know suggest for our listeners who want to mm. you know dig deeper into our topic mm. i'm gonna just suggest a website that you guys can hop onto if you're interested it's called the collaborative for academic social and emotional learning casel c-a-s-e-l so it's an initiative a collaboration if you will of educators interested in and who do advocate social and emotional learning so it's www.casel. That's interesting that you mentioned adults in that description because we talk about the children's context, but Mm. fact of the matter is that Mm -hmm. we don't stop social emotional learning. Oh, Oh, you don't? Yeah. 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 We're all still learning how to adult. I think being (laughs) being an adult should be an important part of SEL. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's true too. That's true too. But, But just to add to that, speaking of resilience, actually, resilience is now tied with another trait or another construct called grit. Mm. 
And so this professor, Angela Duckworth, uh, she has also appeared in a TED Talk for those who are interested. You can also catch her or purchase her book on grit, essentially. Okay, interesting. Yes. So that talks a little bit about resilience as well. Mm. And it's not just for children, but Mm. also Mm. for adults. Yeah. 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 But I don't want to slide into this, you know, broad sweeping claims that, you know, becoming more and more... I guess amplified nowadays, you know, calling young people snowflakes and all that. Too. No, you know, that's no, another, no, that's you a, know, that's a misuse of yeah. the concern, right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that helps either. You know, just saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, toughen up." You know, yeah. mm-hmm. that's the point. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, once again, you were listening to Sibella Ng and Eugene T, and they can Google your names and find out more of your work on the help website, right? Absolutely. Great. Or you can email the show bfmnightschoolgmail.com. Look us up on Facebook. Download our app at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Thanks again to our guests and I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9 The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.